28, use, the former speaking only their own language and never using any other, as the Yamshik did not understand our conversation, he at once set us down as Israelites in whom there was any quantity of guile, we breakfasted on Gilmania, bread, and tea while the horses were being changed, and I managed to increase our bill of fare with some boiled eggs, the continual jolting and the excessive cold gave me a good appetite and excellent digestion, our food was plain and not served as at Delmonico's, but I always found it palatable, we stopped twice a day for meals, and the long interval between dinner time and breakfast generally made me ravenously hungry by morning, the village where the obstinate Yamshik left us, had a bad reputation on the scale of honesty, but we suffered no loss there, at another village said to contain thieves, we did not leave the sleigh, about noon we met a convoy of exiles moving slowly along the snowy road, the prisoners were walking in double column, but without regularity and not attempting to keep step, two soldiers with muskets and fixed bayonets marched in front and two others brought up the rear, there were thirty or more prisoners, all clad in sheepskin garments, their heads covered with Russian hoods, and their hands thrust into heavy mittens, behind the column there were four or five sleighs containing baggage and footsore prisoners, half a dozen soldiers, and two women, the extreme rear was finished by two soldiers, with muskets and fixed bayonets, riding on an open sledge, the rate of progress was regulated by the soldiers at the head of the column, most of the prisoners eyed us as we drove past, but there were several who did not look up, at nearly every village there is an ostrog, or prison, for the accommodation of exiles, it is a building, or several buildings, enclosed with a palisade or other high fence, inside its strong gate one cannot easily escape, and I believe the attempt is rarely made, generally the rooms or buildings nearest the gate are the residences of the officers and guards, the prisoners being lodged as far as possible from the point of egress, the distance from one station to the next varies according to the location of the villages, but is usually about 20 versts, generally the ostrog is outside the village, but not far away, the people throughout Siberia display unvarying kindness to exiles on their march, when a convoy reaches a village the inhabitants bring whatever they can spare, whether of food or money, and either deliver it to the prisoners in the street or carry it to the ostrog, many peasants plant little patches of turnips and beets, where runaway prisoners may help themselves at night without danger of interference if discovered by the owner, in every party of exiles, each man takes his turn for a day in asking and receiving charity, the proceeds being for the common good. In front of my quarters in Irkutsk a party of prisoners were engaged several days in setting posts. One of the number accosted every passerby, and when he received anything the prisoners near him echoed his thank you. Many couples were engaged, under guard, in carrying water from the river to the prison. One man of each couple solicited tobacco money for both. The soldiers make no objection to charity toward prisoners. I frequently observe that when any person approached with the evident intention of giving something to the water carriers, the guards halted to facilitate the donation. Very often on my sleigh ride I met convoys of exiles. On one occasion as we were passing an ostrog the gate suddenly opened, and a dozen sleighs laden with prisoners emerged and drove rapidly to the eastward. Five-sixths of the exiles I met on the road were riding and did not appear to suffer from cold, they were well wrapped in sheepskin clothing, and seated, generally three together, in the ordinary sleighs of the country, formerly most exiles walked the entire distance from Moscow to their destination, 
but of late years it has been found better economy to allow them to ride. Only certain classes of criminals are now required to go on foot. All other offenders, including politics, are transported in vehicles at government expense. Any woman can accompany or follow her husband into exile. Those on foot go from one station to the next for a day's march. They travel two days and rest one, and unless for special reasons, are not required to break the Sabbath. Medical officers are stationed in the principal towns, to look after the sanitary condition of the emigrants, the object being to people the country. The government takes every reasonable care that the exiles do not suffer in health while on the road. Of course those that ride do not require as much rest as the pedestrians. They usually stop at night at the Ostrogs, and travel about 12 or 14 hours a day. Distinguished offenders, such as the higher class of revolutionists, officers convicted of plotting against the state or robbing the treasury, are generally rushed forward night and day, to keep him secure from escape. An exile of this class is sometimes chained to a soldier who rides at his side. One night, between Irkutsk and Krasnoyarsk, I was awakened by an unusual motion of the sleigh. We were at the roadside passing a column of men who marched slowly in our direction. As I lifted our curtain and saw the undulating line of dark forms moving silently in the dim starlight, and brought into a relief against the snow hills, the scene appeared something more than terrestrial. I thought of the array of specters that beleaguered the walls of Prague, if we may trust the Bohemian legend, and of the shadowy battalions described by the old poets of Northland, in the days when fairies dwelt in fountains, and each valley was the abode of a good or evil spirit. But my fancies were cut short by my companion briefly informing me that we were passing a convoy of prisoners recently ordered from Irkutsk to Yenisysk. It was the largest convoy I saw during my journey, and included, as I thought, not less than 200 men. In the afternoon of the first day from Krasnoyarsk we reached Achinsk, a town of two or three thousand inhabitants, on the bank of the Chulin River. We were told the road was so bad as to require four horses to each sleigh to the next station. We consented to pay for a horse additional to the three demanded by our Paderoshnia, and were carried along at very good speed. Part of the way was upon the ice, which had formed during a wind, that left disagreeable ridges. We picked out the best places, and had not our horses slipped occasionally, the icy road would not have been unpleasant. On the bare ground which we traversed in occasional patches after leaving the river, the horses behaved admirably and made little discrimination between sand and snow. Whenever they lagged the Yemshik lashed them into activity. I observed in Siberia that whip cracking is not fashionable. The long, slender, snapping whips of Western Europe and America are unknown. The Siberian uses a short stock with a lash of hemp, leather, or other flexible substance, but never dreams of a snapper at its end. Its only use is for whipping purposes, and a practiced Yemshik can do much with it in a short time. The Russian drivers talk a great deal to their horses, and the speech they use depends much upon the character and performance of the animals. If the horse travels well he may be called the devour brother of his driver, and assured that there is abundance of excellent hay awaiting him at home. Sometimes a neat hint is given that he is drawing a nice gentleman who will be liberal and enable the horse to have an extra feed. Sometimes the man rattles off his words as if the brute understood everything said to him. An obstinate or lazy horse is called a variety of names the reverse of endearing. I have heard him addressed as Sambacon, dog, and on frequent occasions his maternity was ascribed to the canine race in epithets quite disrespectful. 
horses came in for an amount of profanity about like that showered upon army mules in America. It used to look a little out of place to see a Yamshik who had shouted short, and other unrefined expressions to his team, devoutly crossing himself before a holy picture as soon as his beasts were unharnessed. A few versts from Achinsky crossed the boundary between eastern and western Siberia. The Chulin is navigable up to Achinsk, and during the past two years steamers have been running between this town and Tomsk. The basin of the Obi contains nearly as many navigable streams as that of the Mississippi, and were it not for the severity of the climate, the long winter, and the northerly course of the Great River, this valley might easily develop much wealth, but nature is unfavorable, and man is powerless to change her laws. On changing at the station we again took four horses to each sleigh, and were glad we did so. The ground was more bare as we proceeded and obliged us to leave the high road altogether and seek a track wherever it could be found. While we were dashing through a mass of rocks and stumps one of our horses fell dead, and brought us to a sudden halt. In his fall he became entangled with the others, and it required some minutes to set matters right. The Yamshik felt for the pulse of the beast until fully satisfied that no pulse existed. Happily we were not far from a station, so that the reduction of our team was of no serious consequence. In this region I observe cribs like roofless log houses placed near the roadside at intervals of a few hundred yards. They were intended to hold materials for repairing the road. On the upper waters of the Chulin there is a cascade of considerable beauty, according to the statement of some who never saw it. A few years ago a Siberian gold miner discovered a cataract on the river hook, in the Irkutsk government, that he thought equal to Niagara, and engaged an artist to make a drawing of the curiosity. On reaching the spot, the latter individual found the cascade a very small affair. Throughout Russia, Niagara is considered one of the great wonders of the world, and nothing could have been more pleasing to the Siberians than to find its rival in their own country. When I first began traveling in Siberia a gentleman one day expressed the hope of seeing America before long, but added, Much pleasure of my visit will be lacking now that you have lost Niagara. I could not understand him, and asked an explanation. Why, said he, since Niagara has been worn away to a continuous rapid it must have lost all its grandeur and sublimity. I shall go there, but I cannot enjoy it as I should have enjoyed the great cataract. I explained that Niagara was as perfect as ever, and had no indication of wearing itself away. It appeared that some Russian newspaper, misled, I presume, by the fall of Table Rock announced that the whole precipice had broken down and left a long rapid in place of the cataract. Several times during my journey I was called upon to correct this impression. At the third station beyond Achinsk we found a neat and well-kept room for travelers. We concluded to dine there, and were awaited upon by a comely young woman whose coiffure showed that she was unmarried. She brought us the samovar, cooked our pilmania, and boiled a dizing of eggs. Among the Russians articles which we count by the dozen are enumerated by tens. Skalkistoit. Yeetsa. How much do eggs cost? Was generally answered. Had not set kapeka. Disetu. Fifteen kopecks for ten. Only among the western nations one finds the dozen in use. While we were at dinner the cold sensibly increased. And on exposing my thermometer I found it marking 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Schmidt wrapped himself in all his furs. And I followed his example. Thus enveloped we filled the entire breadth of our sleigh and could not turn over with facility. A sharp wind was blowing dead ahead, and we closed the front of the vehicle to exclude it. 
the snow whirled in little eddies and made its way through the crevices at the junction of our sleigh boot with the hood. I wrapped a blanket in front of my face for special protection, and soon managed to fall asleep. The sleigh poising on a runner and outrigger, caused the doctor to roll against me during the first hour of my slumber, and made me dream that I was run over by a locomotive. When I waked I found my breath had congealed and frozen my beard to the blanket. It required careful manipulation to separate the two without injury to either. When we stopped to change horses after this experience, the stars were sparkling with a brilliancy peculiar to the northern sky. The clear starlight, unaided by the moon, enabled us to see with great distinctness. I could discover the outline of the forest away beyond the village, and trace the road to the edge of a valley where it disappeared. Every individual star appeared endeavoring to outshine his rivals, and cast his rays to the greatest distance. Vested, Sirius, and many others burned with a brightness that recalled my first view of the drum and light, and seemed to dazzle my eyes when I fixed my gaze upon them. The road during the night was rough but respectable, and we managed to enjoy a fair amount of slumber in our contracted chamber ado. Before daylight we reached a station where a traveling bishop had just secured two sets of horses. Though outside the jurisdiction of General Korsakoff, I exhibited my special passport knowing it could not, at all events, do any harm. Out of courtesy this notary offered to supply us as soon as the bishop departed. The Reverend Worthy was dilatory in starting, and as we were likely to be delayed an hour or two, we economized the time by taking tea. I found opportunity for a short nap after our tea drinking was over, and only awoke when this notary announced. Lo shitty godovi, in the forenoon we entered upon the steppe where trees were few and greatly scattered. Frequently the vision over this Siberian prairie was uninterrupted for several miles. There was a thin covering of snow on the open ground, and the dead grass peered above the surface with a suggestion of summer fertility. Shortly after noon I looked through the eddies of snow that whirled in the frosty air, and distinguished the outline of a church. Another and another followed and very soon the roofs and walls of the more prominent buildings in Tom Squirt are visible. As we entered the eastern gate of the city, and passed a capacious powder magazine, our Yanshik tied up his bell tongues in obedience to the municipal law. Our arrival inside the city limits was marked by the most respectful silence. We named a certain hotel but the Yanshik coolly took us to another which he assured us was, Aklichny, excellent, as the exterior and the appearance of the servants promised fairly. We made no objection, and allowed our baggage and loaded. The last I saw of our Yemchik he was receiving a subsidy from the landlord in consideration of having taken us thither. The doctor said the establishment was better than the one he first proposed to patronize, so that we had no serious complaint against the management of the affair. Hotel keepers in Siberia are obliged to pay a commission to whoever brings them patrons, a practice not unknown, I believe, in American cities. We engaged two rooms, one large, and the other of medium size. The larger apartment contained two sofas, ten or twelve chairs, three tables, a boy, a bedstead, and a chamber maid. The boy and the maid disappeared with a quart or so of dirt they had swept from the floor. We ordered dinner, and took our ease in our inn. Our baggage piled in one corner of the room would have made a creditable stock for an operator in the elbow market at Moscow. We thought our beards, washed changed our clothing, and pretended we felt none the worse for our jolting over the rough road from Krasnoyarsk. The hotel, though Asiatic, was kept on the European plan, 
The landlord demanded our passports before we removed our outer garments, and apologized by saying the regulations were very strict. The documents went at once to the police, and returned in the morning with the visa of the chief. Throughout Russia a hotel proprietor generally keeps the passports of his patrons until their bills are paid, but this landlord trusted in our honor, and returned the papers at once. The visa certified there were no charges against us, pecuniary or otherwise, and allowed us to remain or depart at our pleasure. It is a Russian custom for the police to be informed of claims against persons suspected of intent to run away. The individual cannot obtain authority to depart until his accounts are settled. Formerly the law required every person, native and foreign, about to leave Russia, to advertise his intention through a newspaper. This formula is now dispensed with, but the intending traveler must produce a receipt in full from his hotel keeper. At the hotel we found a gentleman from eastern Siberia on his way to St. Petersburg. He left Irkutsk two days behind me, passed us in Krasnoyarsk, and came to grief in a partial overturn five miles from Tomsk. He was waiting to have his broken vehicle thoroughly repaired before venturing on the step. He had a single dashok in which he stowed himself, wife, three children, and a governess. How the whole party could be packed into the carriage I was at a loss to imagine. Its limits must have been suggestive of the close quarters of a can of sardines. We used our furs for bed clothing and slept on the sofas. Less comfortably I must confess than in the sleigh. The close atmosphere of a Russian house is not as agreeable to my lungs as the open air, and after a long journey one's first night in a warm room is not refreshing. There was no public table at the hotel, meals were served in our room, and each item was charged separately at prices about like those of Irkutsk. In the morning we put on our best clothes, and visited the gubernatorial mansion. The governor was at St. Petersburg, and we were received by the vice-governor an amiable gentleman of about fifty years, who reminded me of General S.R. Curtis. Before our interview we waited ten or fifteen minutes at one end of a large hall. The vice-governor was at the other end listening to a woman whose streaming eyes and choked utterance showed that her story was one of grief. The kind-hearted man appeared endeavoring to soothe her. I could not help hearing the conversation though ignorant of its purport, and, as the scene closed, I thought I had not known before the extent of pathos in the Russian language. We had a pleasant interview with the vice-governor who gave us passports to Barneal. On learning that we wished to visit that place, among those who called during our stay was the Golubr of Tomsk, a man whose physical proportions resembled those of the renowned Wouter Van Twiller, as described by Washington Irving. Every Golubr I met in Siberia was of aldermanic proportions and I wondered whether physical developments had any influence in selections for this office. Just before leaving the governor's residence, we were introduced to Mr. Naskinsky, of Barneal, to whom I had a letter of introduction from his cousin, Paul Anosov, as he was to start for home that evening. We arranged to accompany him. Our visit ended. We drove through the principal streets, and saw the chief features of the town. Tom's takes its name from the river Tom on whose banks it is built. It stands on the edge of the great Baraba steppe, and has about 20,000 inhabitants of the usual varied character of a Russian population. I saw many fine houses, and was told that in society and wealth the city was little inferior to Irkutsk. Here, as at other places, large fortunes have been made in gold mining. Several heavy capitalists were mentioned as owners of concessions in the mining districts. Many of their laborers passed the winter at Tomsk in the delights of urban life. 
The city is of considerable importance as it controls much of the commerce of Siberia. The site is picturesque, being partly on the low ground next the river, and partly on the hills above it. In contemplating the location, I was reminded of Quebec. I found much activity in the streets and marketplaces, and good assortments of merchandise in the shops. Near our hotel, over a wide ravine, was a bridge, constantly traversed by vehicles and pedestrians, and lighted at night by a double row of lamps. Some long buildings near the river, and just outside the principal market had a likeness to American railway stations, and the quantities of goods piled on their verandas aided the illusion. About noon the marketplace was densely crowded, and there appeared a brisk traffic in progress. There was a liberal array of articles to eat, wear, or use with a very fair quantity for which no use could be imagined. In summer there is a waterway from Tomsk to Tuman, a thousand miles to the westward, and a large amount of freight to and from Siberia passes over it. Steamers descend the Tom to the Obi, which they follow to the Irtysh. They then ascend the Irtysh, the Tobol, and the Tura to Tuman, the head of navigation. The government proposes a railway between Perm and Tuman to unite the great water courses of Europe and Siberia. A railway from Tomsk to Irkutsk is among the things hoped for by the Siberians, and will be accomplished at some future day. The arguments urged against its construction are the length of the route, the sparseness of population, and the cheap rates at which freight is now transported. Probably Siberia would be no exception to the rule that railways create business, and sustain it. But I presume it will be many years before the locomotive has a permanent way through the country. Some years ago it was proposed to open a complete water route between Tuman and Kyotka. The most eastern point that a steamer could attain in the valley of the Obi is on the river Ket. A canal about 30 miles long would connect the Ket with the Yenisei. Once it was proposed to follow the Angara, Lake Baikal, and the Selenga to oust Kyotka. But the swiftness of the Angara, and its numerous rapids, 78 in all, stood in the way of the project. At present no steamers can ascend the Angara and barges can only descend when the water is high. To make the channel safely navigable would require a heavy outlay of money for blasting rocks, and digging canals. I could not ascertain that there was any probability of the scheme being realized. In 1866 twelve steamers were running between Tuman and Tomsk. These boats draw about two feet of water, and tow one or more barges in which freight is piled. No merchandise is carried on the boats. Twelve days are consumed in the voyage with barges, without them it can be made in a week. All the steamers yet constructed are for towing purposes, the passenger traffic not being worth of attention. The Golub of Tomsk is a heavy owner in these steamboats, and he proposed increasing their number and enlarging his business. A line of smaller boats has been started to connect Tomsk with Achinsk. The introduction of steam on the Siberian rivers has given an impetus to commerce and revealed the value of certain interests of the country. An active competition in the same direction would prove highly beneficial, and by and by they will have the railway. During my ride about the streets the Isnoshchik pointed out a large building, and explained that it was the seminary or high school of Tomsk. I was told that the city, like Irkutsk, had a female school or institute, and an establishment for educating the children of the priests. The schools in the cities and large towns of Siberia have a good reputation, and receive much praise from those who patronize them. The institute at Irkutsk is especially renowned, and had during the winter of 1866 something more than a hundred boarding pupils. The gymnasium or school for boys was equally flourishing, 
and under the direct control of the Superintendent of Public Instruction for Eastern Siberia. The branches of education comprise the ordinary studies of schools everywhere arithmetic, grammar, and geography, with reading and writing. When these elementary studies are mastered the higher mathematics, languages, music, and painting follow. In the primary course the prayers of the church and the manner of crossing oneself are considered essential. Most of those who can afford it employ private teachers for their children, and educate them at home. The large schools in the towns are patronized by the upper and middle classes, and sometimes pupils come from long distances. There are schools for the peasant children, but not sufficiently numerous to make education general. It is a lamentable fact that the peasants as a class do not appreciate the importance of knowledge. Hitherto all these peasant schools have been controlled by the church, the subordinate priests being appointed to their management. Quite recently the emperor has ordered a system of public instruction throughout the empire. Schools are to be established, houses built, and teachers paid by the government. Education is to be taken entirely from the hands of the priests, and entrusted to the best qualified instructors without regard to race or religion. The common schoolhouse in the land of the czars. Universal education among the subjects of the autocrat. Well may the other monarchies of Europe fear the growing power and intelligence of Russia. May God bless Alexander, and preserve him many years to the people whose prosperity he holds so dearly at heart. Chapter XLII. When we left Tomsk in the evening, the snow was falling rapidly, and threatened to obliterate the track along the frozen surface of the river. There were no post horses at the station, and we were obliged to charter private teams at double the usual rates. The governor warned us that we might have trouble in securing horses, and requested us to refer to him if the Smotril did not honor our Potashnia. We did not wish to trespass further on his kindness, and concluded to submit to the extortion and say nothing. The station keeper owned the horses we hired, and we learned that he was accustomed to declare his regular trikas out on all possible occasions. Of course, a traveler anxious to proceed, would not hesitate long at paying two or three rubles extra. We dashed over the rough ice of the tomb for a few versts and then found a road on solid earth. We intended to visit Barneal, and for this purpose left the great road at the third station, and turned southward. The falling snow beat so rapidly into our sleigh that we closed the vehicle and ignored the outer world. Mr. Naskinsky started with us from Tomsk, but after a few stations he left us and hurried away at courier speed toward Barneal. He proved an avant courier for us and warned the station masters of our approach, so that we found horses ready. On this side road the contract requires but three trikas at a station. Three sleighs together were an unusual number, so that the Smotrials generally obtained one or both our teams from the village. On the last half of the route the Yenshiks did not take us to the stations but to the houses of their friends where we promptly obtained horses at the regular rates. The peasants between Tomsk and Barneal own many horses and are pleased at the opportunity to earn a little cash with them. Snow, darkness, and slumber prevented our seeing much of the road during the night. In the morning, I found we were traveling through an undulating and generally wooded country, occasionally crossing rivers and small lakes on the ice. The track was a wonderful improvement over that between Tomsk and Krasnoyarsk. The stations or peasant houses where we changed horses, were not as good as those on the great road. The rooms were frequently small and heated to an uncomfortable degree. In one house, notwithstanding the great heat, several children were seated on the top of the stove, and apparently enjoying themselves. 
the Yamshiks and attendants were less numerous than on the great road, but we could find no fault with their service. On one course of twenty versts our sleigh was driven by a boy of thirteen, though seemingly not more than ten. He handled the whip and reins with the skill of a veteran, and earned an extra gratuity from his passengers. The road was marked by upright poles ten or twelve feet high at distances of one or two hundred feet. There were distance posts with the usual black and white alternations, but the figures were generally indistinct, and many posts were altogether wanting. On the main road through the whole length of Siberia, there is a post at every verst, marking in large numbers the distance to the first station on either side of it. At the stations there are generally posts that show the distance to Moscow, St. Petersburg, and the provincial or government capitals on either side. For a long time I could never rid myself of a sensation of gunness when I read the figures indicating the distance to St. Petersburg. Above 7,000 they were positively frightful, between 6 and 7,000. They were disagreeable to say the least. Among the 5,000 and odd verses, I began to think matters improving, and when I descended below 4,000, I felt as if in my teens. The proverb says, a watched pot never boils. I can testify that these distance figures diminished very slowly, and sometimes they seem to remain nearly the same from day to day. The snowstorm that began when we left Tomsk, continued through the night and the following day. The air was warm, and there was little wind, so that our principal inconvenience was from the snowflakes in our faces, and the gradual filling of the road. Toward sunset a wind arose, every hour it increased and before midnight there was good prospect of our losing our way or being compelled to halt until daybreak. The snow whirled in thick masses through the air, and utterly blinded us when we attempted to look out. The road filled with drifts, and we had much difficulty in dragging through them. The greatest personal inconvenience was the sifting of snow through the crevices of our sleigh cover. At every halt we underwent a vigorous shaking to remove the superfluous snow from our furs. A storm with high winds in this region takes the name of Buran. It is analogous to the Purga of northeastern Siberia and Kamchatka, and may occur at any season of the year. Burans are oftentimes very violent, especially in the open steppe. Anyone who has experienced the northern of Texas, or the border of southern Austria, can form an idea of these Siberian storms. The worst are when the thermometer sinks to 25 degrees or more below zero and the snow is dashed about with terrific fury. At such times they are almost insupportable, and the traveler who ventures to face them runs great risk of his life. Many persons have been lost in the winter storms, and all experienced voyagers are reluctant to brave their violence. In summer the wine spends its force on the earth and sand which it whirls in large, 